So last episode, I told you about some animals, technically misnamed but immortalized in song, that live in the wide open spaces of the Great Plains. Today, I want to continue that theme and tell you about another animal that also lives on the Great Plains and also has a somewhat misleading name. Prairie dogs, which are obviously not members of the canine family. Now, full disclosure, I had originally planned to talk about a couple other animals along with the prairie dog, but once I started researching, I found out that prairie dogs are amazing and could easily be the subject of this whole episode. Now, I briefly mentioned in the last episode that prairie dogs are a keystone species of the Great Plains. Their presence has an enormous positive impact on biodiversity and ecosystem health. And what's even more interesting about prairie dogs is that they have some of the most complex social structures and communication systems in the entire animal kingdom. So even though nobody wrote a song about them, let's take a closer look at another animal that makes its home on the range, the prairie dog. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. The name Prairie Dog was in use as early as 1774 and was bestowed on these critters by French fur traders due to their habitat, obviously the prairie, and their warning call, which is described as similar to a dog's bark. Although, I gotta say, I'm not sure what kind of dogs the French were breeding in the 1700s, because I think they sound a lot more like a dog's squeaky toy than a dog's bark, not even a French poodle's. Their scientific genus name, Cynomys, spelled C-Y-N-O-M-Y-S, is derived from the Greek for dog mouse, and may be how I think of them from now on. But of course, these little squeakers aren't dogs at all. They're squirrels, ground squirrels to be more specific, relatives of chipmunks and groundhogs. Historically, prairie dogs were found across the Great Plains, from the Mississippi River west to the Rocky Mountains, and from Canada south to northern Mexico. Nowadays, their range starts much farther west, near the Missouri River in eastern Nebraska. There's five species of prairie dog, all native to North America. Mexican prairie dogs are, unsurprisingly given their name, found in Mexico, where they have a very limited range. Treatment as an agricultural pest, the reality of which I'll talk about a bit later, has led to the Mexican prairie dog being listed as an endangered species. Likewise, the Utah prairie dog is found in... You guessed it, Utah. Central and southwestern Utah, to be exact. It's the smallest of the prairie dog species and also considered to be endangered. They used to be more widespread in Utah, but between the 1920s and 1970s, populations of Utah prairie dogs declined by 87%. The reason? Overgrazing by cattle allowed shrubs to invade the grasslands, something that under normal conditions, prairie dogs help prevent. Gunnison's prairie dogs live at high altitudes, generally six to 10,000 feet, in the high desert of the Four Corners region, the point where Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Utah meet. Although about 75% are found in Arizona and New Mexico, and only a small number are in Utah. Interestingly, Gunnison's prairie dogs molt twice a year, in the spring and in the fall. But that's not the really interesting part. This is. In the spring, shedding starts at the head and progresses toward the tail. And in the fall, shedding starts at the tail 
and moves toward the head, and I have no idea why. White-tailed prairie dogs are found in western Wyoming, northwestern Colorado, and northeastern Utah. Like Gunnison's prairie dogs, they live at higher altitudes, 5 to 10,000 feet. White-tailed prairie dogs engage in interspecific competition, which is when different species compete for the same resources. They do this with the Wyoming ground squirrel. If a Wyoming ground squirrel enters their territory, the prairie dog will chase it and, on occasion, catch and kill it. If it does kill the ground squirrel, the prairie dog, being an herbivore, leaves it for other scavengers. Now, studies have shown that female white-tailed prairie dogs that kill ground squirrels have larger litters, probably because they have less competition for food. But there's a trade-off. The higher the female's body count, the shorter her lifespan tends to be. White-tailed prairie dogs are also the only prairie dog species that fully hibernates through the winter. Of the five species of prairie dog, black-tailed prairie dogs are the most common, and in fact were one of two prairie dog species described by Lewis and Clark during their 1804 expedition. They're found across a large swath of the Great Plains that spans Montana and the western half of North Dakota in the north, all the way south to extreme southeastern Arizona, most of New Mexico, and the western half of Texas, and they're still only found on about 2% of their historic range. Unlike white-tailed prairie dogs, black-tailed prairie dogs do not fully hibernate in the winter. They continue to leave the burrow to forage, but they'll enter a state of torpor at night to conserve energy. Torpor is a drop in metabolism, heart rate, and respiration similar to hibernation, but it's involuntary and much shorter in duration. On average, black-tailed prairie dogs lose 20% of their body weight during the fall and winter seasons when they go through these bouts of torpor. As winter progresses, the amount of time spent in torpor increases. Since prairie dogs get most of their water from their diet, in years with poor rainfall, the black-tailed prairie dog spends more time in torpor during the winter. Prairie dogs on average are about 12 to 16 inches long, including their stubby little tail, and they weigh between 1 and 3 pounds. They have stout bodies and are generally brown or tan in color with a lighter belly. Prairie dogs are primarily herbivores, feeding on grasses and seeds, although they're also known to eat insects or worms on occasion. And sure, they're cute, but prairie dogs also have sharp teeth, like most rodents, and sharp claws for burrowing. They have a lot of predators, but prairie dogs are known to put up a pretty vicious fight. Even black-footed ferrets, an endangered species and an animal I'll definitely talk about in a future episode, whose diet is 90% prairie dogs, have a learning curve when it comes to catching them. Other predators of prairie dogs include coyotes, badgers, bobcats, eagles, hawks, and even rattlesnakes. Now, prairie dog burrows are more than just holes in the ground. They're multi-roomed underground homes. These burrows can be up to 30 feet long and reach nearly 10 feet underground. They're well-engineered to provide protection from larger predators like coyotes or birds of prey, as well as rainstorms, floods, fires, and blizzards. They also help the prairie dog maintain their body temperature, since the burrow will be warmer in winter and cooler in summer than the outside air temperature. Prairie dog burrows vary, but they're constructed using a similar pattern. They can have up to six different entrances, but the main entrance is centered in a volcano-like mound called a dome crater that can be six feet in diameter and a foot tall. This dome serves as a lookout tower, protection from fire and flood, and a neighborhood meeting place. 
The prairie dog continually maintains the dome, repairing cracks and varying its size and shape. The dome is usually bare because of the constant traffic, but the surrounding grass is also kept low to ensure good visibility. Black-tailed prairie dogs often construct a second, larger mound called a rim crater that can be up to three feet tall. These craters are built with the taller rim crater upwind from the shorter dome crater. Now, I'm not going to get into all the physics of this construction technique, but the end result is a difference in air pressure between the two domes that provides ventilation through the burrow. Air gets sucked in through the lower dome crater and exits through the taller rim crater. The burrow is dug straight down or at a slight angle for 12 to 20 feet, and then horizontally in a T or L shape for another 10 to 15 feet. Emergency exits are dug off this main tunnel, reaching the surface about 20 feet from the main entrance. The exits are usually well camouflaged and flat against the ground. A lot of times there's a shaft that stops just short of the surface with the end slightly enlarged. This shaft serves a couple of purposes. First, it's a junk drawer of sorts, a place to put loose dirt and debris. But it also serves as an air pocket just in case the burrow does flood. The prairie dog can get into this shaft and then quickly dig to the surface to safety. Prairie dogs also construct different chambers in their burrows that are used for different purposes. There's nursery chambers for the young, sleeping chambers lined with grass, a pantry for caching food, and even a separate chamber for going to the bathroom. There's also a chamber called a listening or barking room. Located about six feet below the main entrance, this room is used to listen for danger and is where a sentry, usually an adult male, will stand guard when the rest of the family is in the den. Prairie dogs are incredibly social. They live in large colonies or towns, which typically span about a quarter square mile and can contain hundreds of animals. However, one black-tailed prairie dog town in Texas was estimated to span about 25,000 square miles and contain 400 million individuals. The most basic unit of prairie dog society is a family group that usually inhabits the same territory. Most prairie dog family groups are made up of one adult breeding male, two to three adult females, one or two of their male offspring, and one or two female offspring. Females usually remain in their natal groups for life and are the source of stability in these groups. Males leave their natal groups when they mature to find another family group to defend and breed in. Family groups of black-tailed and Mexican prairie dogs are called coteries. Family groups of white-tailed Gunnisons and Utah prairie dogs are known as clans. While these two family groups are similar, coteries tend to be more closely knit than clans. The burrows of coteries tend to be more densely located, and those of clans scattered more widely. Territories usually have well-established borders that coincide with physical barriers like rocks or trees. The resident male of a territory defends it aggressively against males from different families. These interactions can happen 20 times a day and last about 5 minutes each. When two prairie dogs encounter each other at the edge of their territories, they'll stare each other down, make bluff charges, flare their tails, chatter their teeth, and sniff each other's scent glands. When fighting, they bite, kick, and ram each other. Females join the fight if the competitor is about their size or smaller. Otherwise, if they sight a competitor, the females signal for the resident male. One of the ways that members of a family group interact is through what is called greet kisses. 
Greek kisses happen when two individuals approach each other, lock teeth, and quote-unquote kiss. Prairie dogs belong to the same social groups, kiss and part ways. If they don't belong to the same social group, they either don't perform a Greek kiss or they break apart and fight. Biologists can divide individuals into social groups of between 7 and 15 individuals based on kissing patterns. But the social networking of prairie dogs is almost as complicated as our own social media. Studies have shown that some prairie dogs are bridges connecting otherwise separate groups. Others are hubs interacting with prairie dogs from many groups. Some prairie dogs are probably just trying to figure out who that friend of a friend is that keeps commenting on their chitter feed. There's a bit of a misconception about prairie dog reproduction. People think that they're prolific breeders, kind of like rabbits. The reality is almost the complete opposite. Female prairie dogs reach sexual maturity around the age of two. They only produce one litter per year, and in fact only go into estrus, the period during which they're fertile, for a single day. Litter sizes average three to five pups, but often less than half of the pups survive their first year. It's interesting to note that in colonies that have room to expand, pup mortality was significantly lower than in colonies with no room for expansion. Okay, fair warning, things are about to get a little bit dark here for a minute. While some pup mortality can be attributed to predators, a large portion of it, nearly 40%, is the result of infanticide, most often by close relatives. Males that take over a colony will kill the offspring of the previous male, which causes the female to go into estrus sooner. But the majority of killers are related females. Lactating females may kill the offspring of a related female either to decrease competition for foraging areas or basically to gain an au pair, since a victimized female may then help raise the killer's young. Pups are fully grown at five months, and if they can survive the first year dodging predators and murderous ants, average lifespan in the wild is five to seven years. Now, aside from predation and family drama worthy of Shakespeare, other causes of death include poisoning, trapping, and shooting by humans because they think of the prairie dog as a pest, and disease. Prairie dogs are particularly susceptible to plague, which is transmitted by fleas and can quickly wipe out entire colonies. And yes, it can pass to humans if they happen to get bit by an infected flea. But that's very rare, and most human cases of plague are transmitted through chipmunks, rats, and squirrels. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service actually has an oral plague vaccine that they deliver to prairie dogs using drones and all-terrain vehicles, specifically in areas where the endangered black-footed ferret has been reintroduced. Now, possibly the most interesting thing about prairie dogs, though, is their vocal communications. Remember the squeaky toy? There's evidence to suggest that those squeaks contain a whole lot of information, if you happen to speak prairie dog. A researcher by the name of Konstantin Khan Slobodchikov, don't know if I got that name right, is an animal behaviorist, conservation biologist, and professor at Northern Arizona University, where he studies prairie dog communication. His research suggests that prairie dogs have a sophisticated communication system that can identify the species of a predator and provides descriptive information about its size, color, and how fast it's approaching. 
Prairie dogs will use different escape behaviors in response to different alarm calls for various predators. If the alarm indicates a hawk diving toward the colony, all the prairie dogs in its flight path dive into their holes, while those outside the flight path stand and watch. For coyotes, the prairie dogs move to a burrow and stand outside the entrance, observing the coyote, while those prairie dogs that were inside the burrows come out to stand watch as well. If the alarm is for a human, all members of the colony immediately rush inside the burrows. Slobodzikov's research has also shown that prairie dogs demonstrate displacement, which is the ability to communicate about things that are not present, and they can construct new words for novel objects or animals in their environment. In one experiment, black-tailed prairie dogs distinguished human trespassers by height and t-shirt color, and they produced a signature call for a person who repeatedly fired a 12-gauge shotgun into the ground. Turns out that there may have been plenty of discouraging words to be heard out on the range, probably along the lines of, get out of my town and take your cows and the horse you rode in on with you, they were just being spoken in prairie dog. It may only be a matter of time before Rosetta Stone or Duolingo starts offering prairie dog as an option. I mean, you can learn Klingon, so why not prairie dog? Now, there is some debate over whether the alarm calling of prairie dogs is selfish or altruistic. It's possible that prairie dogs alert others to the presence of a predator in order to protect themselves. However, it's also possible that the calls are meant to cause confusion and panic in the group, making other individuals more conspicuous to the predator than the one doing the calling. Studies of black-tailed prairie dogs suggest that alarm calling is a form of kin selection, since it alerts both offspring and extended family like cousins, nephews, and nieces. Prairie dogs with kin close by called more often than those that didn't have kin nearby. In addition, the caller may be trying to make itself more noticeable to the predator, distracting it from the other members of the prairie dog's family. Predators, though, seem to have difficulty determining which prairie dog is calling thanks to the calls having something of a ventriloquistic quality. Now, prairie dogs are frequently vilified as pests, particularly by farmers and ranchers, and they can cause some damage to crops since they clear the area around their burrow of most vegetation. As a result, prairie dogs have been subject to direct removal by farmers through poisoning, trapping, and shooting. Much of their habitat is also being lost to development and urban sprawl. A common misconception that led to widespread extermination of prairie dog colonies is that their burrows pose a risk to livestock, the fear being that cows and horses will step in a prairie dog hole and break a leg. Turns out that cows and horses are not as clumsy and oblivious to their environment as most humans. Journalist Fred Durso Jr. wrote in a 2004 article for E! The Environmental Magazine, quote, after years of asking ranchers this question, we have not found one example, unquote. Researcher Larry Rittenhouse of Colorado State University says, quote, It would be almost impossible for a cow to break its leg on a prairie dog hole. I study these animals' behavior, and they are extremely adept at placing their feet. In my 50 years around cattle and horses, I don't personally know of a single incident where a horse or cow has been injured in a prairie dog hole, unquote. On rangeland, prairie dogs are beneficial and actually save ranchers money. Their burrowing aerates the soil, redistributes nutrients, adds organic matter, and increases water infiltration. They create islands of grassland habitat by maintaining a low-dense turf of forbs and grazing-tolerant grasses, 
which contributes to the maintenance of the open grassland habitat and, as I mentioned earlier, prevents the growth of woody plants. Removing prairie dogs allows the spread of brush, reducing the amount of grazable land. Prairie dog grazing also increases the diversity and nutritional quality of grass by promoting the growth of young grasses, which contain more protein and are easier to digest. Pronghorn and bison, as I mentioned last episode, as well as domestic cattle, prefer grazing in prairie dog colonies. So not only do they have a positive impact on plant life, but hundreds of species of both vertebrates and invertebrates are associated with prairie dog colonies. Vertebrate species richness increased with colony size and density. The bigger the colony, the bigger the variety of species found in the same area. West of the Missouri River in Montana, 40% of all prairie vertebrates rely on black-tailed prairie dog colonies for food, nesting, or denning sites. This includes endangered species like the black-footed ferret, swift fox, burrowing owl, and mountain plover. Okay, final thought. While they may not have been immortalized in song, there is a minor league baseball team in Amarillo, Texas, named the Amarillo Sod Poodles, a nickname for prairie dogs. I take back what I said about dog mouse. Sod Poodles is my new favorite prairie dog moniker. And on that note, I will once again wish you a happy trails. As always, thank you for listening. Please leave a like and follow or subscribe to the podcast. It's free and it helps me out. If you like what I'm doing and you want to support future episodes, there's more ways than ever that you can do that. First of all, we now have merch. Check out our merch store at cafepress.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. You could also consider becoming a patron. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. If a one-time donation is more your thing, you can do that through PayPal. Dispatches from the forest at gmail.com is both my PayPal address and also where you can email me if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes. For additional content, follow Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. All right, allow me to translate. The Prairie Dog says, The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.